You're listening to the Bethel Community Church Podcast. Our podcast normally showcases our weekly sermons here in Chicago at 7601 West Foster. Now, podcasts are great, but they do not replace the care and community you receive from the local church or from your local pastor. So we encourage you to come join our community or contact us to help you find a community in your area. We pray the Lord speaks to you as you listen. Enjoy. Tommy and the rest of y'all for leading us. Kids, it was so great to have you here. You can go to Bethel Kids. Hope you have a great time there. How are we doing today? Everyone good? Doing well. My voice is almost 100%, almost back on that. It's good to be here. Looking forward to our passage today, but uh, before we get into that, um, I like snow. I'm enjoying the snow. Uh, It's a very limited time that I like the snow, but um, yesterday was one of those days of enjoying the snow. Snow's coming down. We have not gotten that much um, yet this season, so me and Nora and James took advantage of the snowfall and got outside to play in it for a little bit. And so we're out there, and, and we got the sleds out. We're pulling it around the house, and uh, it's not packing snow, let's be honest. There was no snowmen to be made, uh, but we made a snow snake and a snow alligator, and, you know, we had our fun. But the snow is really coming down at some point, and I, I say to James, James, just lay down next to me. I was a little bit tired, too, because I was running around the house. It's dual purpose here. So I laid down, and I'm like, just look at all the snow coming down. And there's hundreds of thousands of snowflakes just flurrying everywhere and coming down. And we're just laying there looking up, and I say to him, isn't it awesome? Sure. You know, he's whatever. He's just like, yeah. But I'm looking, at I'm like, this is amazing. And then I go, you know, hey, buddy, open your mouth. See if you can catch any in your mouth. And so he's got his mouth open. I got my mouth open. We're in the front yard. And he's like, oh, I got one. I got another one. I got another one. And I'm like, I don't have any. There's so many. How are they all missing me? So I open my mouth wider. And it's at that moment that I open my mouth wider. James has this handful of snow and just shoves it in my mouth. Just, I mean, it gets all the way down my throat. I'm choking. I'm like, wow. And he says, and I quote, now you have lots of snowflakes in your mouth. <laughs> like, wow, thank you so much for that, buddy. You know, that was a moment. Fast forward 20 minutes later. Now we're onto a new game, and we're piling the snow up on them and seeing if I can bury both of the kids. And I have Nora completely covered, except for just this little patch of her face like this. She stared out like this. And James, I'm, I'm piling up, and I get everything... And I get one more scoop, one more shovel, and there's some spot on his legs that is open, and his face is open, and I take one step towards his face with the shovel, and his eyes drop because he remembers what he did to me, and now he's just laying there, and he's like, he knows. I could just dump this whole thing on his face, so I'm looking at that story to end, but In that moment, I felt mercy and compassion, and I relented from him. 
That compassion required me to respond in a way that was not dumping it on him. That feeling that I had, I had to put it on his legs. Compassion in that moment with my son, kind of easy in many ways. Um, But there's other situations. It's less easy. It's not easy to have compassion for people. It's not natural to have compassion for people. Um, There's times I'm not even feeling it in my heart for other people, much less acting out on it for other people. I can be much too easy, and maybe you can relate to just thinking, well, they deserve that. Or why would I give them something good when they haven't given me something good? Um, Today, we continue in our series on following And we've said it's difficult to follow, and Jesus really is raising the bar, hopefully in all of our lives, of what it means to follow. And today what we're going to see is the role of mercy and compassion for the life of a follower of Jesus. In this series, we've talked about the kind of following that Jesus is after. It's the kind of following that leaves everything on the shore to walk with him. It's the kind of following that goes and eats with people that other wouldn't have. We've seen that it's not the easiest or the most natural response. Today is no different as we have to calibrate our following to the kind of following that Jesus is after. Today, what the following requires is compassion. Lives of mercy. Lives of help given to those around us as we see their needs. And we sacrificially give all that we can To meet those needs. So, turning your Bibles to Luke chapter 10 as we look at compassion, as we look at mercy in the life of the follower. We're gonna start in verse 25 today. I'm looking forward to it. There's a lot in this story, in this parable that I've been just loving to get into this week. I'm excited to share it today and see how God uses it in the life of us at Bethel Community Church. Follow along with me as I read verse 25. It says this, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And we know Jesus has been put to the test before. We know that there's crowds following him. We know people are trying to understand what this following is all about, what Jesus is all about. It's very interesting and very countercultural that the son of a carpenter is raising up religious disciples. This would not have been normal in that time, and many people could look at him and say, who are you to think that you could be training anyone on the religious system? That's the job of a scribe or a Pharisee or someone already in that system to find their own disciples and share that. So here comes a lawyer to put Jesus to the test. I'll put it this way. This lawyer, as we saw last week with Jesus, if you have ears to hear, this, this lawyer does not have ears to hear. This is not someone looking to apply the words in the message of Jesus. Now, we read lawyer, and at least for me, I think of a man or a woman in a courtroom standing before a judge dressed very formally. Okay, that's obviously not who this person here is in Luke 10. So who are we meeting here? What character is this in Luke 10? A lawyer was someone who learned the law of Moses. 
and they became, in that time, an official interpreter of the law. So sometimes you can read about scribes or experts of the law. These are positions that are interchangeable with lawyer. So every detail of Jewish life was under the microscope and making sure that it followed accordingly the law of Moses, where they would follow that diligently. The job of the lawyer was to interpret it. They have to know it front and back, up and down, every detail, and give their opinion on what it meant in spots that might have been unclear to people. So they would help the people with this, and lawyers would devote their whole lives to the study of the, of the Torah and of the law and helping people specifically apply it. Now go back to this lawyer. He is asking a question about what? about the law and what it would have said. Not only is he asking a question, but it's a very basic question. Like this is not some minute random detail. Not like something that should stump anyone who knows. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This is basic stuff for an expert of the law. So here's what I'm saying with that. Everyone here listening to him ask this question, including Jesus, would know that the man asking this question knows the answer to the question and that it's really just a test of some kind. Because if there's anyone who should know the answer to this, it's the lawyer. Jesus' response back to the lawyer is too good. Look at verse 26. He said to him... (coughs) What is written in the law? How do you read it? What's your interpretation? I know you go around giving your interpretation of the law to anyone and everyone who will listen. It's your job. So he literally flips it back on the lawyer. Well, what do you say? It's your job to know what to say about this because you're the expert to know everything about it. So you tell me. How do you interpret it? And I love it. The, the, the lawyer abandons his desire to ask Jesus the question, and he cannot refuse an opportunity to share his own opinion and, and spotlight on this. And so when it's reversed back to him, he, he, cannot, he can't back down from the opportunity to prove his position for who he is as an expert. So what he does is he recites the law, and he gives his answer. Look at verse 27. And he answered, he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Love God with everything and love your neighbor. Here's the thing. Jesus has summed up the law in the same way, right? It's a pretty good answer. He communicates that there should be a love that is with all of who we are, kind of a love for God, all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is, of course, impossible without faith. Faith is at the core of what this man is saying. Faith is at the core of this command. We have to have faith in God, and that is demonstrated by a with all of us kind of love. So the lawyer also adds to love your neighbor. Jesus has called this the second greatest commandment. It's a pretty good answer. Good job, lawyer. Jesus approves of his answer. Look at verse 28. He says to him, and he said to him, Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. 
wasn't asking Jesus because he didn't know. He knew. Just like the lawyer was not asking him because he didn't know Jesus, Jesus turns around and he asks him a question too. I love that the lawyer started with the question and Jesus ends up approving the lawyer's answer. It's just interesting how all that works. You see it. He asks the question. Jesus flips it. He answers his own question. Jesus goes, good job. That's right. Look at verse 29. It starts to take a little bit of a turn. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? What does that mean, desiring to justify himself? Well, here's the thing. He, as a lawyer, has an interpretation of the law, which means he has taken what neighbor means, and he has communicated and interpreted that of who our neighbor is. So as he expounds on that to all the people that would listen to him, he's teaching them, hey, this is what it means. And so he's looking to justify himself for the answer that he's already given to people as the expert of the law. And actually, this idea of loving neighbor, concept of neighbor, was a little bit of a hot-button topic of that day. That a lot of people in Israel would have been looking to justify themselves in, in some way, shape, and form. Because for people that day, their interpretation of neighbor was often associated with national identity. More specifically, that word neighbor was reserved for people within the covenant between themselves and God. They're thinking, I need to love my neighbor, which means other Jewish people, other Israelites. In Leviticus 19.18, it says to love your neighbor as yourself. Within context, their neighbor would be defined as sons of your people or one of your people. So where we oftentimes think of neighbor as someone who lives by us, or someone maybe that we're friendly with. For me, someone that lives in Franklin Park, because that's where I'm from. People of that day, they're not thinking about it like as the people on your street. As they hear love your neighbor, it's actually a much broader scope that they're thinking of, that they're applying this to anyone within the covenant between them and God. They would think of anyone within Jewish lineage. Now, there's times in the Old Testament where the word neighbor branches out beyond just the Israelites. Like in Exodus, the word neighbor refers to Egyptians. But that was never brought into the tradition of the law. All that to say this, it was God's design for neighbor to be more than just within the Israelites. But this is how the interpretation of the law had been passed down from expert to the law to expert of the law to lawyer to lawyer to lawyer. They kept interpreting it, Israelites, Jewish nation, people within the covenant, even though there's instances in the Old Testament that the word neighbor is used for people outside of that. So now Jesus is walking the earth and he's teaching, and there's a very narrow understanding of who their neighbor would be. And rabbis teaching their disciples over and over and and reproducing this discipling thought of neighbor being us, inward-focused, 
just Israelites. It's our nation. It's our people. It's our covenant. These are the neighbors that we're supposed to love. That's the heart of the lawyer. And he's the one looking to what? Justify himself. He wants the gate to be narrow on this. As he looks to justify himself, he wants that narrow interpretation of the law according to tradition. Your neighbor is only your fellow Israelite. So what would they have meant when they said love your neighbor? We know now what they think about what neighbor would be, but what would they mean to say love your neighbor? They would have said according to the command in Leviticus... And as was practiced in the Old Testament, it would have meant to respect or treat your neighbor righteously. And the law had all sorts of ways that it would lay out what it meant to treat your neighbor and people around you righteously and to treat them well in all your dealings with them. So the question from the lawyer back to Jesus is this. Who specifically do I need to treat as the law would have me with respect and honor. It's only the Israelites, right? Who do I need to share this sort of respect and love and holy, righteous living and conduct with? Just as Jesus flipped the first question back on the lawyer, and he makes him answer it, Now comes a second question of who is my neighbor, and this time Jesus answers, but he does so with a story, and it's a parable to give the truth and the meaning of what he's after when he looks to justify himself and say, who is my neighbor? So this is how Jesus answers the question, who is my neighbor, in verse 30. He tells a very familiar story, a parable of a man traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho. Just for context, it's probably about an 18-mile hike. That sort of journey has all sorts of dangers from animals and terrain and, and weather and lack of resources. If you don't have a gas station, you can just pull over and, you know, or McDonald's drive through to hit up. You know, you got to think about this. It's a real deal of, of a journey, but on top of that, the way that the roads were, and really don't think of it as much of roads, as much as paths that would be winding through the wilderness, through the foothills, is the ups and the downs and the winding back and forth. There's crevices and, and, and rocks and spots where people could hide, spots that you would just be totally unaware of danger that could be upcoming. It's not the sort of protection that you would have, maybe even on our streets here, of knowing that people are looking out for your safety. And so here people would hide and people would uh, attack and people would uh, look to steal and rob from people who are on the road because the people on the road would have resources with them and they would have money with them and they would have all sorts of assets. So there's lots of places to hide where you could be attacked And that's exactly what happens to this man on his route. He's stripped of his clothes to gain whatever they might find valuable there. But it wasn't enough just for these people to take his clothes. They also, it says, beat him half to death. This is more than just a flat tire on a road trip. And I hate me a flat tire on a road trip. He's completely vulnerable 
no clothes to protect him from the sun or the heat of the day or the cool of the, of the desert night. He's beat half to death. The strength of his body is gone. That which he would need to rely on to finish his journey. He can't walk. He can't move. He's stuck. He's helpless. So there he lies, stripped, bloody on the side of the road. I already said this. We cannot think about like Foster Avenue Road, okay? Cars are going by all the time. This is a path of some kind that, you know, maybe people are walking, maybe people aren't. This is back in the time here. And it says, verse 31, it says, now by chance a priest was going down the road. Someone came by. Oh, good, because that's not a given on this path that someone would just be right there to see it or to be able to help. But here we get verse 31, a priest is coming down the road by chance. Think of the fortune, though, of that. Just as as the people are listening to it, it's like, oh, good, a priest. He should know what to do. Why? Because he's super religious. If there was someone who should be living by the law, it was him. He knows the law. And what does the law say about your neighbor? From every point of context within this story and parable and how we read the rest of of the book of Luke and other details within here, we get the idea that this is a Jewish man. And so here we have a a priest and a Jewish man. What is his responsibility to someone who is within the covenant? Well, a neighbor would help. The law instructed him to do so. Leviticus 18, to love his neighbor. This is his neighbor. This is someone from his own people. He might not have ever met this man in his life. He most likely did not live in close proximity, but it did not matter. This was his neighbor. He had a responsibility under the law to do something. The fact that it's a priest is significant in this was, because this time it's a Levite that comes by. Levites were servants in the temple for the priests also seen in the religious society as very well connected to the functions of the experts of the law and the religious ceremonies. It's not by accident that Jesus mentions in the parable the two characters in the story as seen as both ones who should know what to do. But if we just back out in the whole passage here, it's this. The lawyer should have known. The priest should have known. The Levite should have known. Yet three for three, oh for three, really, it's the same response from the Levite. It's also with him that he sees the person, and crosses over on the other side. Hear me on this. It can be easy to see a need, but do nothing. It can be easy to race by, to ignore, to justify our day, or our agenda, our actions, our response. I want to judge the priest. I want to judge the Levite, and maybe the other people of that day would also have wanted to. I want to roll my eyes at them and say, wow, y'all are terrible people. But here's the thing. I probably shouldn't for fear that I'm a hypocrite. Do I see the hurting and the needy and the vulnerable and just walk right by? Verse 33 starts with a contrasting word. It says, but. But, it says, but a Samaritan as he journeyed came to where he was. Third character in the parable 
coming by is a Samaritan. Kind of sounds like the start of a joke, right? All right, so there's a priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan. All walking down the street. What's the deal with the Samaritan? Why a Samaritan? It's very intentional why Jesus brings up a Samaritan. There is a reason. The Samaritans' history is, is, is so complicated. I was reading about it this week. And some of it, it depends on like which source of history writings you're reading to really get their lineage. You know, you read Jewish historical things and they'll say one thing about their past. You read other sources and they'll say different things. It's, it's kind of complicated. Samaritans were Israelites who lived in the northern kingdom. But it's complicated history because if you're to read the history recorded by the Samaritans, they see themselves as pure descendants of the Israelites. And they see themselves as people who were left in the land during the exile. They're like, hey, we're part of you guys. But Jewish sources say Samaritans are descendants of the colonists of the Assyrians that were planted in the northern kingdom who intermarried with the Israelite population. So they see the Samaritans as people who intermarried with the very people who captured the land and led them off into exile. They don't see them as pure Israelites, pure Jewish descendants anymore. So this happens roughly in 700 B.C., And the perception of Samaritans from the Israelites begins to change. They see the offspring as not people of the covenant, which has a lot of implications, especially when it came to occupying the land and interactions between the two. There started to become some hostility between Samaritans and Jews. And they were fine treating the Samaritans differently, casting them out. They no longer belonged to the lineage of Israel. They were no longer, hear me on this, their neighbor. Because remember, neighbor for them was defined by people who were Israelites and all part of the covenant. So when they perceive that Samaritans are no longer part of that, they think that they have absolutely no problem casting them out, treating them differently. They no longer need to love them. The law, as they taught by their rabbi, did not require them to show love, to be a neighbor to these people. Do you see the significance of what Jesus is about to do here? So when he says a Samaritan comes down the road, these are the associations they make. The Samaritan. You know, they they would have thought, okay, priest, he knows what to do. He didn't do it. That's weird. Levite, he knows what to do. That's weird. He didn't do it. Samaritan, man, in their mind, it's like all bets are off what this guy's going to do. He's not even part of us. The hostility that they would have felt for this person, well, what's he going to do? Look at it with me. Verse 33, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. See, the other two saw, and they moved to the other side. But the Samaritan sees, and he has compassion. Compassion would be to have mercy. It's a stirring within you 
as you see a need and you see someone and there's pity and there's empathy, there's compassion, there's mercy stirring up with you. And, and, and one thing that we see about compassion is when that's stirred up in you, mercy is stirred up in you and compassion has to be the action. You can, you can all day, all, all you want, be like, oh man, that's rough. I see your situation. That stinks. I'm so glad I'm not there. And you could keep moving on your way. But compassion requires a response where it's like, I, I see you in the spot. I have to help you. And that's exactly what he does. Verse 34 says, he went to him. Very strategic use of words here. That he went to him because the other two crossed on the other side, Right? He went to him because that's what compassion does. Compassion stirs in you away. You just have to go to him. And so Jesus continues the story. And it's remarkable what the Samaritan does in this crisis situation, in this overwhelming situation. He bandages, bandages that's tough for me to say today. He, he puts band-aids on him. I'll work on that later. Uses his own oil and wine to help the man. Then he places the man on his own animal. Do you see the sacrifice here? Do you see how involved this is to help this person? It's over the top. It's abundant. He uses his own resources to care for him. And then it says he brings him down the road to an inn where he can have a room and have rest. He's given his own goods. He's lended his own animal. Now spending time with him at the inn to help this man back to strength. And the next day he gives two denarii, which would be two days wages to the innkeeper and asks him to take care of him. He says, if you need any more money, I'll be back and I'll pay the difference. And Jesus ends the story there because he's made his point. You know, we don't get, we don't get anything about, you know, how the man recovered and how his wounds were because the reality is, is Jesus has already answered the question that the lawyer asked looking to justify himself of who is my neighbor. Look at verse 36. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Let me tell you something. This is not a tough question. If you get this wrong, I mean... Man, I don't know if I could help you, right? Like, it's like, I love that Jesus, I love that Jesus still makes the lawyer answer the question just like he did with the first question. Second time he tells his story, but he still makes the guy answer the question. Which was the neighbor? Here's the question. Which one demonstrated respect, honor, righteous living? Which one treated the man as their own? Verse 31, 37, he answers. And he said, the one who showed him mercy. He doesn't say Samaritan. He gets what being a neighbor was in that moment, and it was mercy. The one who had compassion, the one who took action, it was the Samaritan, which is ironic because by definition of the rabbi's teaching, 
And what the lawyer was looking to justify, the Samaritan was not his neighbor. The lawyer wanted confirmation that he did not need to care for people outside of Israel and all sorts of other regulations, I'm sure. And Jesus takes someone who the lawyer would not have even pegged as someone within Israel, and he shows, well, that was the one who knew what to do. It was the Samaritan who was the neighbor to a Jewish man. It tears down everything that they were teaching from the law because Jesus shows that it's not limited to someone within the covenant, to someone within your national heritage. We actually actually open it up to all people, anyone with need, anyone around you. Also, do you notice that Jesus changes the question? The lawyer wants to know, who is my neighbor? Show me who I have to do this with. And Jesus opens it out and up and says, which one proved to be the neighbor? He turns it into an action, into a lifestyle, into who we are, into just what we do. It's not about boundaries and clarifying who do I need to do this for. It's about teaching that this is our heart of a follower, and this is just who we are, and it's just what we do. We are neighbors. He goes back to what Leviticus was getting at all along, the heart to love. This was the heart all along of what it meant to be a neighbor. More than just the people around you and more than just the people in the covenant, but to all. And Jesus highlights that. And as Jesus says, go and do likewise, he's commanding the lawyer to go and be a neighbor to everyone. Regardless of ethnicity or proximity or need, he says, go see needs, go see people, and be to them the love of God that he's called you to share with others. Go have mercy, go act as a neighbor, go be a neighbor on their behalf. It's everyone. Go see those people and see those needs. And so that's the message to us. On the heels of last week's message where we talked about loving our enemies. And here, Jesus, we give another, we get another teaching of followers to see people, to see needs, to have compassion, be a neighbor, seek that out, go to them and love them. A couple of questions as we close today, just trying to think about application within this. Number one, when was the last time you felt mercy for someone? When was the last time you were stirred with compassion? I actually want you to try to answer that. To have compassion involves seeing needs of people around us. How often do we just not even see the needs of people? Sometimes it's because we're too busy and we're racing along our way with our agenda and our things. And I'm pointing at myself as I do that, as I say that. Sometimes too consumed with our own life to notice the struggles of people around us. I also think sometimes why I don't necessarily feel mercy or compassion that often, and maybe it's the same for you, is I'm too calloused. I see news stories of tragedy after tragedy. I'm surrounded by seeing all sorts of heartbreak and heartache all the time all around me, and sometimes I just don't feel anymore. I'm calloused to it. Followers feel compassion. 
because they see the needs and they're looking to meet those needs. But one step further than just followers feel it, remember last week in Luke 6, 36, Jesus said, be merciful as who is merciful? As our Father is merciful, as God, this is part of the character of God. So if you can't think back to a time recently that you were merciful, remind yourself, this is part of the character of God that his followers should be living out. There are so many needs. There are hurting people all all around us. There are people we interact with every day that we can have mercy and compassion and looking to meet those needs. I think sometimes it's seen as like, well, you know, there's the gift of compassion, and I just don't got that because, man, the way I was raised, I'm just kind of brash or whatever. And the Father is merciful. He calls for us to be merciful. Sometimes mercy can be seen as weak. It is not weak. I think this passage calls on all of us to model the character in the heart of God of mercy. There are these needs around us. Have you felt that recently for someone or for people? Second question, is there anyone that you're looking to justify yourself with that they're not your neighbor? Is there anyone that you're like, yeah, but they're off with, you know, you know, limits for this reason or that reason? In the parable, the, the lawyer was trying to justify himself, right? Trying to fit you know, the parameters on who is my neighbor instead of being a neighbor. The call to us is to be a neighbor to everyone around us. It doesn't just refer to a certain people group or anything like that. So does your compassion fall short with certain people? People who think certain things Do we think that some people don't deserve our time or our help? It's their fault that they're in that situation. And we cross the other side of the street, never letting our heart feel the mercy or compassion for them. Maybe we see things just from a different viewpoint that maybe justifies us in thinking that we can be calloused. I would encourage you, to let God's spirit work on you in that. Last question today. Uh, Do we see sacrificial, mercy-filled neighboring in the church of Jesus? Are we known for this? Now, I get that we don't want to make this our full pursuit of who we are. We're not saying that this is the gospel and this is how someone is saved to do this. We're we're not saying any of that. But are we on the forefront of issues in our neighborhood and in our nation, in our world that are heartbreaking or evil or sad? Are we stepping into that with hearts of mercy and compassion to sacrificially help? Are we doing all that we can do to help the vulnerable and the needy and the oppressed and meeting them in the street with compassion and love? I think we get that from this parable. This idea of opening up the narrative of who is my neighbor to know we are just to be a neighbor and a neighbor is defined by compassion. You know who does this really well? 
it might surprise you. I see high school and junior high students do this really well. I see them see their friends who are hurting and look to meet them there. I see them longing and retreats and trips. I see them as someone is struggling or down. I see them trying to do that regularly. It's something I think we can learn something from some of our students with that is they're so intentional trying to be people of mercy and compassion. It's not weak. It's the character of God. May we all look to do this in our lives and see the needs right here within us. And as we go out there to the street, I know someone's going to see someone with a flat tire today and you're going to be like, oh man, should I go help them? <laughs> like 10 of us stop and they're like, am I, am I getting mugged? What's happening here? <laughs> may we be people of love. May people see it. God, we ask you to help us with this. Give us eyes to see and hearts to feel. May we have compassion in the ways that you are full of mercy and full of compassion. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.